Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name's Tom, and I lead the team at Hope Church. And today I'm going to be working through a passage in the Bible in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you might like to turn there. Uh, Today we're going to be seeing a change in the story that we've been working through together, where Jesus embarks on an epic journey towards Jerusalem. Now, until this point in the story, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. He's calmed storms. He's delivered people from uh, oppressive spirits. He's healed people. He's raised people from the dead. He has done incredible things. And now he's starting this epic journey from Galilee, where he's been operating until now, to Jerusalem. It's a shift in the story of Luke. He's drawn his team together. He's now uh, grown in popularity as a teacher. Thousands of people have sometimes turned out to hear him teach. And last week, we saw that he took his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, the closest three. He took them up a mountain where he met with Elijah and Moses, two heroes of the Jewish faith that had been dead for hundreds of years. And it's up on that mountain that the disciples see Jesus shining bright. It's like he's, he's lightning is how it's described. He's so glorious. And Jesus has this discussion with Elijah and Moses, and they're talking about the time of his departure in Jerusalem, that he must accomplish this departure in Jerusalem. And we learned from Tim in last week's message that this word for departure is exodus, that Jesus is going to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. And to the kind of Jewish readers at the time, they would have understood exactly what this meant. Because in their story, in their history, their people had been enslaved in Egypt for, for 400 years. They'd been mistreated. It was awful. And then through Moses, God led the people of God out of Egypt and into the promised land. Through many uh, miraculous things, some quite awful things actually, God inflicted upon the Egyptian people in order that they might let the Israelites go. And Jesus, we learn, is, he is going to accomplish an exodus that is even greater than that. That he will go to the cross in Jerusalem and accomplish an exodus on behalf of the whole world. A whole world that is in slavery to sin and ultimately to death. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and accomplish an exodus on behalf of the whole world. He's going to draw people out of slavery to sin and death into the promised land of relationship with God now and forever. And straight after this story, straight after this glorious moment with his disciples, they come back down to earth with a bit of a bang. So often that's the case. We might experience God in a glorious way. We might have an amazing time of praise and worship. We might encounter his presence in a special way. And then suddenly we're back to life, back to reality. And what happens for these guys is they They encounter a boy who's oppressed by an evil spirit. They're suddenly again reminded of the broken world in which they live. And Jesus, uh, he he delivers this boy. His disciples are unable to do it. They're unable to uh, see this boy uh, released from this demonic oppression. And Jesus does it. But they're instantly reminded that they weren't made to just live up a mountain. They weren't made just to live in this kind of uh, exhilarating experience all of the time, that actually they're to be sent on mission. And that's something that we can learn from this story, that whilst we love wonderful times in God's presence, whilst we so enjoy worshiping Him and being in His Word and just meeting Him in special ways, that actually we are sent into the world. We're scattered on mission into the world. So we pick up this story on the other side of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is seen in all His glory, and we pick it up in verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out 
for Jerusalem. So as I've already mentioned, Jesus from this point onwards is moving away from Galilee where he grew up and where he's conducted all of his ministry until now, and he's starting towards Jerusalem. It's the moment, a bit like the moment in the, in the movie where the, the, the good guy realizes, I, I know I need to go and have a showdown with the bad guy. I need to go and destroy the bad guy once and for all. And from this moment onwards, Jesus is resolutely setting his course towards Jerusalem. It's going to take several weeks. In fact, it's going to take up another 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus will meet some people on the way. He will teach some amazing things. But he is resolute in his decision. He cannot be dissuaded. He is committed to seeing his mission through to completion. This is Jesus with a furrowed brow and a determined gaze. He is heading towards Jerusalem. He's setting his course towards the cross where he would die in apparent humiliation and shame. He would die before the crowds who are mocking him and scorning him. He would die a substitute's death. He would die in the place of you and I. And there's echoes for us here from Abraham's story. If you are not familiar with the Bible, Abraham is a, is a guy who God chooses, just kind of plucks him out really, and he says to Abraham, you need to sacrifice your son Isaac. It's a test for Abraham of his obedience to God. And Abraham has this awful decision to make, and he decides he's going to obey God, and he takes his son Isaac on this long journey. It would have taken days for him. And on this journey, Abraham's considering the horrors that will be before him. He's considering the horrific moment that he's going to have to sacrifice his own son. And they get up the mountain, and it's at the very moment that he's about to go through with this deed that God says, stop. And he provides for Abraham a ram who's able to be the sacrifice for God. And in a similar way, Jesus, as he goes to Jerusalem, which is essentially where Abraham was going, he was going to Mount Moriah, on which Jerusalem was built. Jesus is now setting his course for Jerusalem, knowing full well the horrors that would be before him, with this in his mind, day in, day out, knowing that he's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Here he is in obedience to God the Father, making an agonizing journey towards Jerusalem knowing that he would be the sacrificial lamb for the whole world, that he would be the sacrifice that that sheep in the story of Abraham foreshadowed. Let's read on in the story, shall we? As the time drew near, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, so they went on to another village. So on the road, they're traveling through a place called Samaria, and the Samarian people were disliked by the Jewish people. If you've ever heard of the story of the Good Samaritan, the reason it was so shocking to the people was that the Jews just thought the Samaritans were awful people. And, and the same was the, the other way around as well. These, these two people groups did not get on well because the Jews kind of saw the Samaritans as half-Jews. They, they had kind of intermingled with other tribes and other people, and they weren't really pure Jews. And they had their own ideas about where they should worship and their own interpretations of the Bible. And Jesus and his disciples, plus 
we learned 70 plus other people are coming through Samaria. And as night is drawing near, Jesus sends a party on ahead to go and see if they can find somewhere to stay and some things to eat. But they reject Jesus. The people of Samaria reject Jesus. Why? Well, it's because he's going to Jerusalem. This means he's not going to validate their idea of where, where one should worship. They're not gonna, he's not going to validate their ideas about religion. Well, they, they think he's really not concerned about their cause. And so to them, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And James and John, they want to call down fire from heaven upon them. It seems so extreme. They're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder by Jesus. And it's these kinds of episodes that make you, th- you see why he nicknamed them this. They're thinking back to a story in the Old Testament where God's enemies literally get fire rained down upon them in judgment. But Jesus, he rebukes James and John. He's saying, now is not the time for condemnation or judgment. Now is the time for salvation. Now's the time for salvation for the world, not for judgment. Judgment's going to come, but now's the time for salvation. And one day, guys, you're going to come back here. And in only a year or so's time, John would come back here as many from Samaria gave their lives to Jesus. And John himself would be one of those laying their hands on them, praying for them and seeing them filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the transformation that God takes people on, where James and John in their prejudice towards the Samaritans say, let's rain, let's call down fire upon them. Let's see them judged by God. And suddenly in a year or so's time, they're seeing these guys as their brothers in Christ. And, and John would come to be known as the apostle of love because in his letters, he wouldn't stop going on about love. And you read these letters in the Bible. Transformation is available to you in Jesus. But we're going to focus in now on the last few verses of Luke chapter 9. And this is where we're really going to camp out today. And we're going to ask the question, what is the most important thing in our lives? Let's read these last few verses of Luke chapter 9. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, Come, follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. These are very harsh words from Jesus. We see three people encounter Jesus. And there's three questions really that we're going to ask as we study these encounters. Jesus brings some very harsh answers to them because In this, he's bringing them to a fork in the road, and he's asking them to make a decision. And the first question that Jesus is asking is, is it going to be me first or comfort first? Is it going to be Jesus first or comfort first? This guy says to Jesus, I will go wherever you go. That's an incredible offer. In fact, he's responding to Jesus far better than many, many people do in the book of Luke. But this guy had never really considered what discipleship was all about. He'd never considered what it was like to really be a Christian. And Jesus brings him to a fork in the road and he says this, let me make this clear, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be full of comfort. I am homeless. This is not a get rich quick scheme. I do not live in comfort. My life is not built around comfort. 
you may or may not have been served well when you came to faith in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you, you may have been served a lie that says, well, if you believe in Jesus, he's going to make you rich. Or if you believe in Jesus, you will never be sick again. If you, if you believe in Jesus, your life will be floating around and you'll just be happy all of the time and nothing will ever affect you. Maybe you've been sold lies, not quite as obvious as that, but a little bit more subtle. Well, Jesus, he will not have this man enlisted into his service under false pretenses. He doesn't wish for him to be ignorant that in following him, he's entering into a, a life where comfort will be the, the main deal. No, he's saying, I want you to know comfort will need to be put to death. He's not wanting to discourage this man, but he wants him to know the truth. You're going to have enemies. You're going to sometimes not know uh, what's coming around the next corner. You're going to be called to make sacrifices. That's what Jesus is wanting to make clear to this guy. You may even be called to be homeless. Before you get shocked and, and think, that, think that sounds reckless, what I mean by that is that you might be called to travel elsewhere in the world and not really have a place to call your own. You may never own a home. I've got some good friends of mine who had a home of their own. They owned a lovely home in a really nice part of the world and they knew God's clear calling to go and live in London. Now, if you know anything about London, it's probably that you know it's a very expensive place to live. And a four-bed house in one part of the country doesn't get you anything in London. And these friends of mine, for ages, were working out, how are we going to get to London? We so clearly know God's call to go and be in London, to serve this particular church, to get involved with its mission, and to really get stuck in on mission in that part of London they felt God calling them to. And in the end, what did they do? They sold their house. And with the proceeds of that sale, they are now renting a place in London. And to the rest of the world who don't follow Jesus, that seems like a completely reckless thing to do. Why would you throw away your security? Owning a home is, is synonymous with security. Well, you've always got that to fall back on. You can pass that on to your kids. And yet, in obedience to Jesus' call, they have laid their house on the line and said, look, we just need to be in London because that's where he's called us to be. It's illogical in the world's eyes. But if we're going to come after Jesus, we're going to be asked that question, is it Jesus first or is it comfort first? Are there things in your life where you're holding things back because you just you want to have comfort, because you want to have that fallback option, because you, you don't really want life to be difficult? What is it that you might be holding back? Let's assess this in our hearts, knowing that Jesus is greater than it all. Now, the second encounter is with a person that Jesus actually goes after himself. And he says, hey, come and follow me. And Jesus brings him to the question, is it me first or is it life's cares first? Is it Jesus first or life's cares first? And the guy says, Lord, let me first return home to bury my father. And that's when Jesus says some very harsh words once again. He says, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. That is immensely harsh. That is probably some of the most disturbing things that Jesus is recorded to have said. And as we heard from Tim last week, we, we simply cannot call Jesus a good teacher. If you're not a Christian and you're joining in today, really, really pleased to have you with us. But let me tell you, you cannot call Jesus a good teacher. If, if he's not the always existing son of God, 
then he's, a, he's, an, he's an awful teacher and someone whose words we should pay no attention to whatsoever. But we do believe he is who he claimed to be, that he is the son of God who has always existed and his words do require our attention and our obedience. It looks like Jesus is being so harsh. I want to go and bury my dad. No. What, it's my dad, Jesus. I love my dad. And if I went to Jesus and said, Jesus, my dad's died. I need to go and bury him. And he said, no. I'd be thinking, what? Your word says you've got to honor your father and mother. Did Jesus love his parents? He absolutely loved his parents. We see him honoring Joseph and Mary. We already have read stories of him honoring them in this book of Luke that we've been working through. And we know that Joseph is not on the scene after Jesus' adolescence, so he likely died when Jesus was quite young. But we know that even in agony on the cross, Jesus is caring for his mum, and he calls out to John. He says, John, will you look after my mum when I'm gone? Jesus loved his mum. He absolutely honored his parents. And so this verse, which has been twisted in the years gone by by cult leaders who say, hey, you've got to cut off all ties with your family if you really want to be properly following Jesus. Well, this verse isn't as plain as we might think it is. What is going on here? You see, I don't think that this guy's dad was dying or has even died by this point. I think that what's going on here is something that is perhaps a little alien to our culture. It was very much expected of children to honor their mother and father right until their deathbed, and that meant caring for them in their older age. It was totally like it was one of the Ten Commandments, so this was a really serious deal. And as your parents got older, you're supposed to look after them, have them in your home, provide for them. And when they died, there was to be strict and orchestrated procedures, procedures by which you were to prepare the funeral and their burial, the certain music and meals and gatherings, and people would come from all over the place. It was a very, very big deal. Listen, if this guy's dad was dying, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus. He would be with his dad. And if his dad had died, he would have been at the funeral and dealing with the funeral procedures. I believe that what he's saying is, look, Jesus, I've still got to care for my parents for a few more years. They're getting on a bit in years. I've got to go and look after them. And when they've passed away, then I will follow you. Then I will come after you. And Jesus is saying, that's not how this works. It's me first, everything else second. That's what Jesus is saying to this guy. But we, we do that in our lives, don't we? We say, Jesus, when I've got these exams out of the way, then I will really follow you. I just need these three years. I've got to study hard. I'm going to put you on the back burner a little bit. I'm going to bury my head in the books. And, and once that's over, you've got my undivided attention. But then it becomes, hey, Jesus, when I'm married, then I'm going to give you my all. I just need to get through this, this moment of, of singleness and, and enjoy some relationships that perhaps wouldn't be that honoring to you just for a little while. And then when I'm married, I will honor you. Or then it's, hey, listen, Jesus, when I'm retired, <laughs> I'll have the time for you. But until then, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got some money to earn. And then when I'm 65, hey, you're going to be blown away. I'm going to be the best servant I could possibly be. Do you, do you recognize that in your own heart? Something a bit like this, or even something a bit more akin to this man's situation. Jesus, my parents don't like me following you, but when they're gone, then I will follow you. My parents are a bit suspicious about Christianity to be honest. But, but when they're out the way, then I'll give my wholehearted devotion to you. And Jesus is saying, how many years of your life are you going to blow? 
how do you know you even have these years of your life to blow? And he finally meets another person who says, Lord, I'll follow you, but I need to go and say goodbye to my family first. And again, Jesus is seemingly very harsh here. But what has happened is that this person has offered to follow Jesus with a condition. Jesus has got to have our whole heart or not at all. And Jesus is bringing him back to a fork in the road and asking him, is it going to be me first or your past? Is it going to be Jesus first or your past? It seems a very reasonable thing for this guy to ask. What he's asking for isn't a, isn't a sin. It's the same thing that Elisha did. Now, Elijah, who I've already mentioned, he was a mighty prophet in Israel. And as he was coming to the end of his ministry, he took on a guy called Elisha, who was going to be his successor. And when he took Elisha under his wing, Elisha said, hey, can I go back and say goodbye to my family? Can I go and tell them that I'm going into ministry? And he said, yes, go ahead. And so the Bible records that Elisha went home. He told his family and his friends, he said, I'm going into ministry. I'm going to follow Elijah around. And we see that they had a big feast and then Elisha burned his plow. Now that is a big move for someone who's in an agricultural society. In burning his plow, he's basically saying, there's no plan B. There's no going back here. It's a bit like soldiers who, uh, in the olden days, when they would invade another country, they would burn their ships. There's no retreat. There's no, uh, there's no going back on this plan. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to go where God wants me to go. I'm going to say what he wants me to say. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. I'm going to be who he wants me to be. That's where I'm going. That's the direction of my life now. And it's, it's usually the case that those who look back actually want to go back. It's usually the case that those who say, I just need to go and I go back a little bit. It's those who don't actually want to go forward with Jesus. It's not a problem to look back at your life and say, you know, I, I messed up in some ways. I'm so grateful for God's grace in my life. I'm so grateful that he intervened in my life. Where would I be without him? That's just kind of assessing the past. That's a sober evaluation of the past and a, and a gratitude for what God's done. But there's an actually a, an unhelpful, an unholy looking back that says, oh, life was Life was better back then. Life was more simple back then. It was, it, was, uh, it was so good when I was able to do those things. I wish I could go back to the way I was before I was a Christian because before then I did some, did some fun things. It's a bit like the, the Israelites who they got freed from slavery. There was this incredible miracle, this exodus. And then as they're wandering, as they're going towards the promised land, not quite there yet, they start to grumble and say, Oh, it was so good when we were back in Israel. Yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had food to eat. At least we didn't have want in that regard. Listen, as, as tempting as it is when times get tough, don't, don't look back and say, oh, if only I could go back to those times. If only I could be like, like I was before I came to Christ. We put Jesus first. That is what it is to be fit for the kingdom of God, as we read in verse 62. Fit for the kingdom of God means literally well-placed. If you think about mowing your lawn, if you have one, you, if you look back constantly, then you're going to end up making an absolute mess. You're probably going to end up mowing over some people or making some damage to your garden. If you keep looking back, we mustn't look back. We look forward. We look to Jesus. So as we close, what's it to be for us? Does, does Jesus come first in your life? 
or does comfort? Does Jesus come first in your life or does pleasure or business or money? Does Jesus come first in your life or the opinion of family or loved ones? What comes first for you? What comes first for you? Is it your ambition? Is it the the plan that you've intricately mapped out for yourself? What is it that's first in your life? Is it that or is it Jesus? It's a big question. It's going to require consideration. It's going to require sober reflection and prayer. In what areas is Jesus bringing you to a fork in the road to get you to consider? Is it me first? I want to just finish by talking of the inexpressible joy that is set before us. What did motivate Jesus? What was Jesus' motivation as he set his face towards Jerusalem? Let me tell you, it was an inexpressible joy. It was a joy that was set before him. We read in Hebrews 12 that we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was with great joy. So it was, it was sorrowful. He knew that he was going to go to an agonizing death on the cross, but there was something beyond it that he had his mind set on. There was some joy set before him, the joy of bringing in millions, billions of sons and daughters into the family of God over history. There was a joy that was set before him, and it was that joy that was in his mind that helped him to set his face towards the cross. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, we have joy inexpressible filled with glory. That's a joy that we can experience now. A joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's a joy we can experience now. We can experience joy in knowing Jesus for who he is now. But there's a great joy to come that the Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 8 says, look, all of the stuff that we go through right now, all of the pain and the mess that we go through right now isn't even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. We have a a new Jerusalem to look forward to, a heavenly city, a home with God forever, where there'll be no need for the sun because Jesus will be our light. And so we, like Jesus, who set his face to Jerusalem, we can set our face to the new Jerusalem, to the heavenly reality that is ours because we have placed our faith in Jesus and he is our saviour. So let us be those who are fit for the kingdom of God, who put Jesus first, who don't kind of put other things first and say, Jesus, in a few years' time, I'm going to really commit to you. Let's be those who are committed to him, fixing our eyes on the glorious future that is ahead of us. Let me pray for us as we respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we say you are far greater than all of these other things that we've considered this morning. You're far greater than success. You're far greater than a great home. You're far greater than the applause of others. You're far greater than anything we might be running hard after. Jesus, you are better. You are better. I pray that right now you would convince us of this truth, that you are better, that there would be a convicting work in hearts that will really just show people 
you are better. Lord, I pray you help us to make radical decisions in light of this, in light of this truth that following you is so much better than anything else we could give our lives to. I pray we'd put you first above all else. I pray we'd be radical disciples who have our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to you now and always. And I pray for anyone who may be listening today and who is offended by this Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your, your goodness to them. Lord, you, you call us to a radical life, but you, Lord Jesus, you laid down your life for us. And I pray that you would just show your amazing love to all those listening right now who don't yet know you. Just show your love to them. Bring them to you in amazing ways. Let them know this transformation that comes about as we realize more and more who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you again soon.